Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Queen Leva, a master's student in environmental change and global sustainability at the University of Helsinki, focusing on climate adaptation in Southeast Asia. My guest today is Sharon Sia, Senior Fellow and Coordinator at the ASEAN Studies Centre and the Climate Change in Southeast Asia Programme at the ICS Yusuf Ishak Institute. With a master's degree in public and international law, her research interests are in the ASEAN rule of law, multilateralism, climate change and environment. If you are like me and listen to the BBC World Service while having your breakfast porridge, you might have heard Sharon's interview a couple of weeks back during the BBC Radio's coverage of COP26, which we will talk about later. Thanks, Sharon, for joining us at the Nordic Asia podcast. Thank you for having me today on your show. So firstly, about the ISIS Yusuf Ishak Institute. As many of our listeners might be already familiar with the Institute, it was established in 1968 and has since then become a leading research center on social, political, security and economic trends and developments in Southeast Asia based in Singapore. However, I think the Climate Change in Southeast Asia program, which you coordinate, is a relatively recent addition to the Institute's activities. So could you tell us a bit more about what motivated the decision to establish the program and the research areas that you focus on? Thanks for asking that question. So the program was started in August 2020, and it was by then that it was felt that climate change was fast becoming a strategic issue that the Institute should be paying attention to. And by strategic, I mean that there is phenomenon, its impact, and the policy responses that are coming from across the countries in the region will be important and significant in years to come. And it was also increasingly clear that some of these changes that coming our way need to be planned for and we need to cast a greater eye on these issues. So the research areas that we look at, namely five, we look at the regional climate outlook of the Southeast Asian countries in the region. We do a study on their NDC's nationally determined contributions and what they mean and whether their national policies and plans are in place to achieve the targets they set up for themselves. The second area we look at would be in agriculture, forestry, and food security. As you know, parts of Southeast Asia are the rice bowls for the region. So it's important for us to anticipate some of those changes coming our way. The third area is in cities. Many Southeast Asians are living or planning to move to mega cities in Southeast Asia, and many of the cities are under threat of sea level rise, flooding, and inundation. So these are some of the challenges we look at. The third area is in energy and decarbonization. So we look at the long-term plans the countries have to reach a net zero target. And the last one is finance. So it's quite a catch-all phrase, as I always tell people. We look at issues ranging from ESG to carbon pricing to trading and so on. Wow, so it really is a very comprehensive program and it sounds like you cover both climate change mitigation and climate adaptation and everything kind of in between and around it as well in your activities. 
I think I saw that at the end of 2020, the program published the first ever Southeast Asia Climate Outlook Survey Report, which probably falls under the first area of the program's work. And I found that it provides a really comprehensive overview of how climate change is perceived by Southeast Asians all across the region. One of my personal favorite facts that came out of the report was that of the respondents to the survey, those who were under 21 years old, over half of them were actively engaged in climate advocacy. And as a young person, although I am not 21 or under, I still find that really, really inspiring. And this like over half of the people under 21 was also significantly more than for any other age group that you surveyed. So I wonder as the report's author, what do you think are the key takeaways from this survey you'd like people to know about? Yes, uh, so the findings were in a way not surprising because the greater generation, as I call them, also exists in this part of the world and they're very concerned about uh, what climate change is going to mean for them at the end of the century, right? And so as a result of those findings in the first survey, in our second survey this year, we actually wanted to know where they were getting their new sources from. And it was very interesting, of course, uh, again, maybe something not new, that the under-21s really depend a lot on social media influences and public figures to get their information about climate change issues. So here is a double-edged sword. If you were following a good influencer who provides accurate information, well and good, but you are also subject to misinformation and disinformation in this day and age. So that's something that I think maybe our under-21 audience need to be aware of, you know, to discern the, the new sources. So on, in terms of takeaways, the very first one that comes up consistently is that the region agrees there's a need to cut reliance on coal. And I think uh, you do know that two of the countries in our region uh, actually account for large proportion of the coal pipeline, and that's Indonesia and Vietnam. So the findings are really quite startling that people feel that there is definitely that need to cut subsidies and they feel that it is beneficial in the long term, but it will be painful for them in the short term. But related to that, we also found out from the survey that people were not so willing to bear the costs individually. They want to see governments and big corporations bearing those costs. And the third finding that we came away with was that despite COVID, people place equal emphasis on COVID and climate. And in this year's edition, we asked, do you see whether government stimulus spending was going towards green recovery? And it was a majority no. And in fact, people from business, finance and industry who incidentally are the beneficiaries from many governments, wage subsidies and soft loans to keep them afloat, they also had a resounding no. Um, so it was quite clear that the public perception was that while there were stimulus packages being doled out, these packages had certain short-lived effects on the people. So it really sounds like there's not that much difference in Southeast Asian perceptions of climate change and the solutions to it, what they're willing to do, and the relationship between the climate change and the pandemic compared to how I see people perceiving it. For example, here in Europe, despite the pandemic, climate change is still a very relevant issue to a lot of people. But people really do feel like even though they are willing to make some sacrifices themselves, they still also want business and governments to take the lead and kind of show them the way of how to do that. 
On the last point, still to talk about the pandemic a little bit, you mentioned the fact that government spending on pandemic stimulus measures did not contribute to a green recovery. So why do you think this is so? Can you pinpoint any type of reasons? Well, we did a little bit of research on the slew of packages that governments came up with, and really what we could see was there were no green strings attached. So, for instance, in some governments bailing out the national airlines, there were no conditions imposed. And in fact, in some governments, they gave out environmentally harmful measures, which to us was really counterintuitive because when you want to push for a recovery, isn't this the best opportunity to push for a green recovery? So for instance, governments could have imposed maybe sustainable jet fuels as a condition for using their packages, or they could, instead of giving out just dollar wage subsidies, perhaps to retrain their workforce to get them digital economy ready. I think these are some of the issues I think in the long term governments need to think about. Yeah, so again, quite similar to the trends in, say, North America or Europe, where despite the rhetoric of building back better and green recovery, it, research has shown that it really hasn't been the case. So I promised our listeners we would talk about COP26 shortly, and we've now arrived at that segment. COP26, which is short for the 26th Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, took place a few weeks ago, as many probably know, but not being able to escape the sleuth of articles that came out of that. But in short, it's a key event in international climate governance, where world leaders and diplomats convene to coordinate a global response to the climate emergency. COP26 was initially supposed to take place in November 2020, that had to be postponed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. In the meantime, we've seen an unprecedented amount of climate change impacts around the world, both in 2020 and 2021, from heat waves and droughts to huge storms and flooding, not least in Southeast Asia. I think in the build-up to the conference in early November this year, there was a general feeling of COP26 being a make-or-break moment for the future of the planet. Do you think this was the case also in Southeast Asia? And what could you say were the Southeast Asian countries' key priorities and expectations going into COP26? I think that the kind of extreme weather events that we've seen in the past in the summer has affected almost every habitable area of the world. And that has made climate change a very clear and present danger for people here, especially in Southeast Asia. And I want to highlight that two of the countries that has really borne the brunt of the impacts are actually Philippines and Vietnam. And the losses there are great. So that was that sense, you know, going to COP26, whether we were going to see more, the kind of a ratcheting up of the climate ambition that the UK presidency was calling out for, whether we were going to consign coal to the dustbin of history, which was that slogan being rallied across. I think for Southeast Asian countries, their priorities going into COP was to see um, that fulfillment in terms of climate finance, the pledge of the 100 billion, which uh, sadly has fallen woefully short because many of us here in Southeast Asia are actually developing countries and all eight out of 10 of the nationally determined contributions depend on international assistance. So it's actually conditioned on receiving that assistance to meet the mitigation targets. 
So that issue has, in a way, been kicked down the road to be discussed at the next COP, but we are still calling out for encouraging the developed countries to play a part and to help the countries in this region and in many other regions who, in fact, were not the ones who had enjoyed all that progress and they still have a lot of room to grow. They have these aspirations for economic development, but now they are also being told that they have to deal with the disaster response, deal with the loss and damage, they have to adapt. And that's really a lot to ask for small economies that are struggling. So that's one of the expectations. The other, and I've always said, tale of two cops, right? There there you have the big political pledges that were being made, US-China coming together, India and its net zero and so on. And then there were the technical discussions on the conclusion for the Paris rule book. So on the Paris rule book side, I think many of the Southeast Asian countries had actually mentioned in their nationally determined contributions that they intend to use some form of carbon trading mechanism to meet their mitigation targets. So for them, Article 6 conclusion and coming up with a robust mechanism was very important. And I'm glad that it has actually been fulfilled. And the chairs, Norway and Singapore, worked very hard throughout the negotiations. I think they extended over time to try and reach an agreement that would be acceptable to all the countries. And at the policy level, I think that's good too, because we are seeing a proliferation of voluntary carbon markets that remain unregulated. So if we had not concluded Article 6, then that proliferation will continue and the lack of regulation will become more glaring. So having Article 6 in place is actually a good thing for all the players on the market. Do you think the fact that Singapore was co-chairing these negotiations helped ASEAN as a regional bloc bring forth its own positions more strongly? Or do you know if that played any kind of role in the outcome and how favourable it is to Southeast Asian countries' positions and desires? Well, I think Singapore had to be a rather impartial chair. It represented all countries. It had to be a true facilitator in the sense that all views had to be taken into consideration. But I think Singapore definitely was aware of what was happening in the region and they kept that in the back of their minds. I think there was a very good relationship between Singapore and its co-chair, the Norwegian Minister for Environment. And having good chemistry also helps in negotiations and helps to bring everybody on the table. So it was not an easy task, but I'm glad that it really finally concluded. And now with this clarity in place, with the rulebook in place, we can really finally talk about implementation, which is key. It's no use talking about all these highfalutin pledges if you're not going to make plans to implement them. And as the International Energy Agency said, if we fully implement all pledges in and on time, we may hit towards a best case scenario a 1.8 degree increase, which is still a 0.3 degree increase away, you know? So every 0.1 degrees is important for all aspects of life on this planet. I think people do tend to not think about the severity in every 0.01 increase in temperature because it means for some species, it may mean extinction. Yes, and related to that, you also mentioned the phrase loss and damage earlier in your response. And you told us that Philippines and Vietnam were really badly affected by extreme weather events and 
the rest of the region as well. And I was thinking about how this year, I think at COP26, we saw a lot more attention paid and focus on this phrase loss and damage finance as a separate thing from climate finance, which has traditionally referred more to finance towards adaptation and mitigation that developed countries have pledged to give developing countries. But separate from that, there has been a lot of campaigning this year towards providing funding to build back and repair the damage that is already being caused by climate change impacts. And I think at one point in the negotiations, they were going quite well for developing countries. And it looks like we might get some sort of Glasgow facility that would take this concretely forward. And at almost the last minute, then it was kind of watered down into just some sort of discussions, negotiations. What's your take on that? I think it was very disappointing for the developing countries because it was really at the 11th hour that it was watered down. So unfortunately, that was how the cookie on loss and damage crumbled and we have to work it up backwards. And I think that so many of the leaders, I think you have seen for yourself, right, the Tuvalu minister giving a speech in knee-deep water. I think it was really impactful in the sense that it brought home the point, that existential threat that the Pacific Islanders facing day after day with this issue. And you're right, although we've discussed loss and damage in COP20, in all the various COPs before, there wasn't that much of the angst. Because I think largely we're seeing real loss and real damage now, and it's going to be increasing in scale and frequency and intensity. And that's worrying for many of those nations. I don't really have an answer as to how we can revive that discussion. I hope it can be, and I hope that developed countries will pay attention to this. It is critical, and it builds trust, because ultimately, whether the cooperation succeeds or not, it's on the premise of trust. I think Scotland took an unprecedented step of actually pledging some money specifically for loss and damage. So hopefully it's the first domino to fall, so to speak, and will inspire others to act. I still wanted to ask you about some of the pledges that came out of COP26, Mm -hmm. more on the mitigation side. So two of the big ones that I think saw a lot of news coverage was the global pledge to end deforestation by 2030. And then there was another one to transition away from coal power generation, both of which are significant to multiple Southeast Asian countries. You already mentioned before that mm-hmm. Indonesia and Vietnam are big coal power using countries. So could you just give us some highlights of what specific Southeast Asian countries committed to in Glasgow? I think the coal part of the deal was yet another letdown. (laughs) Many developing countries felt played out at the end when it seemed like the big powers had this powwow at the back of the room and they came out with a deal to water down the phrase face out to face down. But you, you know... The definition of success really differs from person to person. So you can see it as glass half empty or glass half full. And for those who tend to be more optimistic, will say, okay, this is an interim step. We can face down and eventually go to face out. I think also it has to fit the realities within a national context and within a regional context as well. So until and unless, you know, there is a real viable alternative, many countries like Indonesia and Vietnam, it'd be hard to wean off power source. But I do see that there 
anti-terrorism movements, it's already happening. It started with China actually pledging to stop financing for overseas coal power plants. And that's quite significant because countries in this region are actually engaged with China in, in several of the Belt Road initiatives. So with China kind of making this intention to green the BRI, that sends a signal as well to the regional governments that perhaps it's time for change. The other one on deforestation is promising, but as you know, there was a 2014 similar pledge and that ended up with nothing. So hopefully Glasgow Declaration on Forestry and Land Use will not go down the same garden path, pardon the pun. But we've really got to ask whether the countries are actually going to sit down seriously to amend or to edit their national plans to incorporate some of these new commitments that they've made. And when they have done that, then we will be able to see how implementable, how operational these pledges can be. But I'm hopeful because we're not a big carbon emitter, we're in fact a carbon sink. And Indonesia is a huge carbon sink. So we've got this need to give certain incentives to incentivize governments in the region to preserve as much as they can and to avoid that deforestation. Because I think studies have shown that preservation of forests is far more effective than trying to reforest your land. Yes, that's definitely right. It really does make a difference whether it's newly planted trees or if it's old growth forest, not just for greenhouse gas emissions, but also in terms of biodiversity and indigenous people's rights and livelihoods. So there's many aspects where it's much preferable to preserve your forests than to cut them down and regrow them. You've mentioned, and we've also talked about last minute dealings and great power relationships and this kind of thing. So Going into COP26, there was a bit of a concern that the relationship between the US and China wasn't all that good. There was a little bit of talk about a new Cold War. And then they kind of surprised us in the second week with this joint communique where they pledged to work together. So what's your take on that? I mean, that contentious relationship has sort of carried over, right, from the Trump administration to Biden. And I suppose here in Southeast Asia, we do see more of that unfolding of that rivalry. So it was definitely a surprise. And I think coming out from that C-Biden summit that happened last week, it does seem that climate change is one of the few bright spots in that relationship that they could agree on uh, amidst the long laundry list of other issues like Tibet, Xinjiang, Taiwan, and so on. So it bodes well that the US and China could find common ground. It bodes well for Southeast Asia as well that China has pledged a carbon neutrality target, not by 2050, by later by 10 years, but still it is encouraging to the developing countries because if China shows leads the way and shows a model that can work. I think the other countries will work together. So I think between the two countries, China and the US, because they hold so much in terms of uh, R&D, technology, knowledge, they can fill many of the gaps here in Southeast Asia and they can provide capacity building and technical know-how and get investments into the region, which is very important. So again, when we circle back to the climate finance issue, if we can't attain that amount of help from public finance, then perhaps the private sector finance can come in to fill the gap. So overall, it bodes well. And I certainly hope that ASEAN has a role to play in exercising some of its convening power to get not only the major countries, but also the middle powers in to formulate a strategy and to work together for the good of climate. 
I recall in your first Southeast Asia Climate Outlook Survey report, you also had a question about who Southeast Asians see as leading on climate. And the winner who came out of that was actually the EU rather than the US or China. And I'm curious, you are probably already working with your colleagues on this year's report. Are you asking the same questions this year as well? You said you added some questions this year's report as a follow up to the results that you got last year. What do you expect? Do you think we will already see the results of COP26 reflected in the results of this survey? Can you give us a sneak peek into it? <laughs> Actually, yeah, the results we added at the very last minute, well, which country had demonstrated climate leadership because we saw that there was an absence of global leadership over the last few years. I mean, in particular, when President Trump decided that he would withdraw the US from the Paris Agreement. So the EU came up tops and it was followed by Japan. And then we followed up with another question, which country do you think can play a more proactive role? And surprise, surprise, actually, although the US performed badly in the leadership question, they rose up a little in the second question, which means that the people in this region actually do hope, maybe it's aspirational, they hope that the US can do more for the region. So there's this residual reservoir of goodwill, perhaps, towards the US. And that might be something that we would want to pick up, given the fact that the Biden administration now has a Build Back Better World partnership. And we want to know whether people view this partnership positively, negatively. And these are some of the issues. And some of the other issues that we would want to pick up on for instance, in the first survey, when we asked questions about nationally determined contributions, we realized that the general public were not so au fait with the term and they weren't able to take those questions as well as we hoped they could. But maybe with the momentum from COP26 and people reading a lot more of these NDCs and long-term strategies and so on in the news, they might be able to come back to those questions next year. So these are some of the things that we're thinking of. But we'll be, you know, we're always open to see what might be useful for the policymakers in the region to include in the survey. When is the report coming out again? I'm really looking forward to <laughs> reading it. Not yet. We, are, we start work in <laughs> April every year. We will launch the survey itself in June. And then the report will be sometime in August or September. Okay. Great. As I said, I'm looking forward to seeing it and what could be extracted from it. So Sharon, thank you very much for talking with me today and sharing the work of the Climate Change in Southeast Asia program with the Nordic Asia podcast listeners. For those who are interested, where can they find more information about the program and are there any ways to get involved in its work? Thanks for asking me that question. So I'm going to give you a link that you can include at the bottom of the podcast for people to visit the page. But otherwise, you can email climatechange at iseas.edu.sg to get on our mailing list and we'll keep you informed of what we're up to. And of course, we're always looking for people who are interested and want to be involved in this part of the world and our work. Thank you again. That's really great. I myself am really interested in the way Southeast Asia is adapting to the effects of climate change. So your program on the urbanization and those effects are especially interesting to me. And I'm looking forward to seeing some research results or other outcomes of that aspect of your program. So thanks again, Sharon. My name is Queen Leva. I've been talking with Sharon Siah from the ISIS Yusuf Ishak Institute Climate Change in Southeast Asia program. 
Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.